You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and today I'm talking to Mark Thomas. Now this is very much an episode in the background of which you can hear me high-fiving my 18-year-old self. Mark's a real hero of mine and I grew up watching his uh, Mark Thomas comedy product which was some of the most exciting, daring, innovative, investigative kind of... uh, I don't know what journalistic comedy he was uh, coming up with, very imaginative and very funny satirical pranks to play. Uh, as as we'll, we'll go into detail on these, you'll get a sense of what I mean. And also nowadays he's transformed. He's been through this kind of renaissance and ended up creating very nuanced and typically impassioned works of theatre, monologuing verbatim theatre, um, where he's investigated and interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people in order to get to the meat of a subject, whether it be uh, his dad's love of opera towards the end of his life, um, or the fact that one of his activist friends turned out to be a spy for the police, or, as in his latest show, the NHS checkup at 70, uh, the inner workings of the NHS. We've got so much to talk about, we're going to jump straight in in this episode. We are going to talk about the euphoria of stand-up, about the dynamic between uh, selflessness and the control, the, the, the rush that he feels doing stand-up. Um, we're going to talk about how he needs critical friends to guide him along the way, and uh, we're going to talk about having a missile delivered to Mark's house. So plenty of stuff there, lots of stuff in the extras as well for members of the Insiders Club, which you can join at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. This is Mark Thomas. Let's start with the NHS show. Yeah. Which I saw a few nights ago at the Traverse. Yeah. Which is called Check Up the NHS at 70. Mm-hmm. And for me, that was the first of the new style of Mark Thomas shows that I've seen. I've since read the scripts for Cuckooed and Bravo Figaro. I was aware at the time that I was missing them in the maelstrom of previous Edinburgh festivals. But I said to you, as I said to you in the bar afterwards, I am more familiar with you, like the most immediate version of you in my mind, is from the filth benefit gig like in the 80s, like a routine about uh, getting kids to eat kiwis and butter on a plate so they weren't yeah. scared of oral sex when they grew up. Yeah, yeah, early, yeah. Early, early 80s, yeah. Mark. Yeah. And so for me, it was... It, you'll be used to this phase of your career now, but I, I mean, I, I didn't think... I, thought, I think I thought I was going to go and see a stand-up show. And it was obviously very funny. The show is very funny. But it's not a stand-up show. No. 
So tell us what it is for people who might be listening to this who still have in their mind the Mark Thomas that they grew up with. It's a mix of theatre and stand-up and storytelling and journalism. It is. The journalism aspect of it, all of those things are sort of... We're familiar with the, the ways in which you might have got there. Yeah. But I lo- look, what I love are telling stories, and I've said this in a show, and one of the shows I did, because uh, like, this is the second show this year, the first show we did was called Showtime from the Frontline, and what happened there was um, I've spent four years um, negotiating with a theatre in a refugee camp in the West Bank, and uh, it's called the Janine Freedom Theatre, and myself and a woman called Sam Beale. Now, Sam Beale is Dr. Sam Beale, and she runs the comedy course at Middlesex Uni. She's an old mate. She's an old anarcho, so we know each other from sort of activist days. And uh, she's great. I, I remember talking to her. She did an article years and years ago about um, Dutch squatting on the canals. And if you have your boat, you squat the moorings. Yeah. But the way the, work, the law works in Amsterdam was that the bailiffs, to kick you off, have to come and serve you notice on a specific time. So they have to tell you when they're coming. So what the Dutch squatters were doing were hiring these boat cranes that would lift their boats out of the water. So technically they weren't in the water, and technically they weren't using the mooring, technically they weren't squatting, and the bailiffs just had to then go away. So I love... So she comes from sort of that tradition, but absolute deep, deep, deep love of comedy. And uh, she teaches it. So the pair of us devised this... Um, a course to teach people about stand-up and... and um, in this refugee camp in Palestine. And we went over, all in all, we worked for a month over there and then put on this stand-up show and then brought two of the people over and did wrote a show about what it was like trying to put a show on. And it was about the censorship that you encounter in terms of societal censorship. A mate of mine, Faisal, who, is in, who was in the show, um, a guy, a brilliant, brilliant performer called Faisal Abahaja, he, just, he always used to say, we've got many different types of occupations. There's more than one. We've got the military occupation by the Israelis. Then we've got a religious occupation and a societal ex- occupation. And, and it was really... And, and so it was exploring that. And in it... This is a really long-winded way of getting to the point, which is um, my belief that all jokes are stories. So all jokes are stories. So you have a beginning, a middle, and a wrong ending. That's how you have jokes that are that, that you establish an idea with the comedic rule of three. You, you you bring it out, you reaffirm it, you subvert it. So that, that it's a story of it has a story structure within it. And um, I'm always fascinated by stories. Those are the things that really, really interest me. And so for me, to go from stand-up to this isn't an unusual journey. That's what I'm... It's not a departure from what you're doing. It's a, It's just a long... A long yeah, yeah, it's just a long kind of 33-year development to find out what I like doing. <laughs> do you know <laughs> and do you, I mean? do you feel that's interesting to find out what you like doing? You... Prefer this? Yeah. In, in which ways do you prefer this? Is there anything I think you that, miss from just you and a mic and, and yeah. your sense? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've done a couple of benefits and, and, you know, you have to try and get sharp for the benefits and you do a couple of gigs to warm up and just sort of like five minutes and then get to the benefit. And I have stood on stage at benefits and just done a kind of ten-minute set 
And afterwards, the hunger is unbelievable. <laughs> the uh, addiction, you're back oh, on track, right? Oh, you're like, the addiction's man. there again. It is absolutely unbelievable, that hunger. Uh, that exists in there. You know, if you've been a comic for a period of time and you stop doing it and start again, there's that, ah, it just eats into you. It eats into you. It's a really interesting feeling. And I I always end up thinking, oh, I wonder if I could... But I know the thing about stand-up is you have to do it all the time. You have to do it all the time. You have to keep your foot on the neck of stand-up or it will rise up and kill you. You know, and that's how it works. And is that is that de- what is that desperation to like, or not desperate, that, but that kind of feeling, that whoa, that that desire to do it again? Is that I, I suppose I think of you as a, an incredibly selfless comedian. All of your material is about the outside and other people and helping other people. You you certainly seem to take joy in the ways, the inventive, creative, devious ways that you can yeah. help people. So, is is that? Is that a selfless... It's clearly not a selfless thing. That's not a selfish thing. That kind of, I want to be back up here. The kind of the megalomania of the comedian, I might imagine. It's the rush. Talk to me about about the rush. There is no other feeling like it. There really isn't. Um, And it is the rush of being in control and of having them laugh exactly when you want them to laugh and then riding it and pacing it and bringing in the next one and... Pulling it and twisting and turning on words, on single words or gestures that can get the effect that you want from that audience. It's it's the feeling is euphoria, and it's power, presumably, because I, I might imagine in your activism you are you're vulnerable. Look, I've always said that if you want to be a comic, you've got something wrong with you psychologically, right? And I don't mean that in a glib way because if you want to make a group of complete strangers like you. I want them to like me unconditionally, even though I might hurt them. <laughs> OK. <laughs> yeah. What do you so, think? That, you know, that's not a natural impulse. No. And um, it is that feeling of actually, you will, I will make you despite yourself. OK. And when you say despite yourself, does that mean there are different audiences to whom you play? Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, absolutely. You know, when you get to different audiences, you you just want to press the different buttons that will actually go, you weren't expecting this one. So even if what one might imagine a home crowd and a narco crowd, you know, I really, I think I saw you at the Bongo Club. God oh knows, man, like that 12, was great. 15 years ago, a long great time club. ago. That was yeah, a lovely yeah, club. Amazing. And look, you, in the in the um, in in the NHS show, uh, there's a bit where I'd say, you know, there's just a small bit about British exceptionalism, about the idea that we're superior to everyone yes. else. And I talk about it in terms of Brexit and military intervention in the NHS. And it gets a laugh. And then I said, of course, you're not like that, are you? Because you're arts and crafts. <laughs> yeah, and there, yeah. is, there is a lovely moment of just like, of course, you're sitting in judgment. But you know it's a smug piece of shit when you do that. Yes. And actually, here's why. And then to back it up yeah. with the fact that actually that kind of thinking, that thinking that goes, you know, the NHS isn't the best in the world. You're just getting in the way of fact. You're just getting in the way of actually improving things. If you think the NHS is the best in the world, it is potentially the best in the world, but we're average in terms of what actually happens. 
And I love that idea of just tripping people up on their own, you know, their yeah, own because romanticism. Some of what you are saying, some of the evidence you're giving us is surprising in that way. I imagine a lot of people there are expecting you absolutely to say, look, the NHS is the best in the world. Because we, we know that you believe in it, we know that you yeah. support it, we know your politics. But you want critical friends. That's yes. what you want. You want okay. critical friends and you want people who are able to go, we see beyond the binary of Daily Mail versus good people. Do you know what I mean? And actually, it, the Daily Mail will often slag off the NHS and some of the things that he has to say is right. Guess what? You know, the, the, yeah. the, no one has a monopoly on truth. I mean, I still would like to publicly lash the owners. But, you know, that's the, the actual idea that you can be critical of the NHS and not seek to undermine it, but actually to, to improve it, to embolden it, that's an amazing idea. Why wouldn't we do that? Why on earth wouldn't we do that? Why wouldn't we seek to improve things? If you can do... Um, like, we talk to these amazing... Uh, basically, the show, as you know, we go and talk to a whole load of experts and get access to all sorts of people who really were quite remarkable and then spent a month in residency at a hospital. And one of the amazing things is... Talk, the, people, the stuff that doesn't get in the show is enormous. And there was a, a, we had a chat with this bloke who was just incredible about how you deal with prostate cancer and about the possibility of establishing men's health clinics in GP surgery. So they're there, and so it's just a matter of... You, instead of going, oh, you've got a finger up your bum... It's, no, 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 you can do it on a blood test. You can start... That's where we're starting to head to. You're starting to head to this idea that, you actually, if you, are, you have your PSA taken, the levels are over a certain thing, then well, you're in trouble. Well, actually, what you can do is, instead of doing a scan, we can use an MRI scan. And an MRI scan will give you far more detail. So that means you're trying to break down the access to actually get screenings, mm-hmm. but also make it, e- make it easier for people to, to go to it, break away some of the stigma. But also, then you start going, well, actually, with an MRI scan, we don't need to do half the biopsies that we're doing, which is invasive surgery. And it carries a risk. It carries a risk of nicks and cuts and leaks and erectile mm-hmm. dysfunction, all this kind of stuff. So, actually, what you're looking at is this constant way that you can improve. Why wouldn't you do that? Do you know what I mean? Yes. And, 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 and that, so that politically happens as well as in terms of scientific progress. And do you think that the reason people don't criticise the NHS, people who believe in it, is for fear of kind of muddying the message and letting the bad guys win. I think it is. In, in, uh, one gig I came out of and this woman said, can I just have a quick word with you? I said, yes, she said, I've just Googled this. Are you? And she's Irish. She said, are you aware of the fact that Britain comes first in the Commonwealth Fund ratings for uh, healthcare? And I said, yeah, I am absolutely aware of that and it's for access and access to healthcare, we come first. Right, access to a GP, access to registration, access to A&E, access to hospital, we come first. The problems begin after that. And what you have to... And, but she was very kind of like, no, no, but you should say that. And it was like, mate, if you didn't pick up on the fact that I love the NHS... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, OK. So, but part of the job of this show, and your job generally, is to is to, journalistically, is to search for truths, even if they are unpalatable truths, to show a kind of warts and all version. Yeah. Not a version, like a true, a true representation. Well, I want to give my... my to, I'm talking about my experience of going through these things. And it, it, it was majorly life-changing. Well, like, this is how I love working, OK? For me, it was... Um, the big change happened when I was doing the telly show and we were doing... Um, I stopped doing I stopped doing live gigs, 
and the telly show became all-encompassing. And, and just for people less familiar, people in, in different countries, that's the Mark Thomas comedy product. Yeah, Later yeah, called yeah. the Mark Thomas product. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. And um, it was, you know, it was just all-encompassing. It was all-encompassing. We made that show. Um, we did 45 programmes... Jesus, we I didn't did. That many. Uh, we did like three, four special one-offs. And uh, each program isn't simply for people who've not seen it. There are deeply involved. I mean, one that sticks out for me was buying uh, cheese, buying a hundred cheeseburgers from McDonald's and selling them next to McDonald's out of an ice cream. Oh pack. yeah, yeah. I mean, do you we, know what I mean like each each show contains lots and lots of kind yeah. of kind of stunts, yeah. but stunts that are, are kind of rigorously underpinned with making an actual point. Yeah. It's not just like jackass, it's not just chucking yeah. loads of crazy stuff together or writing half an hour of comedy. And then we would and then we would just kind of what, what when we first started to make the show we wanted to make we wanted to show do things that people hadn't seen on TV before. So one of the things we did was we wrote to a whole load of conservative MPs and said uh, we're doing a, youth, a young people's programme. Would you like to appear on it? And be- because it was moving up towards the election, we targeted people who are in marginal seats <laughs> and they wanted <laughs> to appear. Yep. You know, they wanted some exposure. And we actually got way more MPs than we could film. We actually had to tell some of them sorry before, which is kind of quite odd. Um, and what we did was I dressed up in a bear costume. And I would sit... Then this is all before Dom... Dom Jolly used to be my researcher on the ah, first series. Okay, right? okay. And so we would sit there and um, basically I was wearing this teddy bear costume and we'd get these MPs in. they go, right, you are... Uh, lovely to have you on the show. And they go, well, it's very nice to be here. Just tell me, do you like British honey? Do you like honey? Yes, British honey, absolutely marvellous. Do you like Winnie the Pooh? Love Winnie the Pooh. You're a uh, pro-hanging but anti-abortion. What age do you think we should kill them? And so you've got this, this massive sort of children's bear asking this question. And one MP just went, uh... 18? <laughs> it was just genius. Um, and so we did all sorts of stuff like that. Um, with the, the show you referred to is we just spent a day at the drive-in at McDonald's uh, and we cut intercut these interviews with McDonald's PR people talking about how much fun it is and, and the laugh that everyone has. And, and so we turned up at McDonald's with a, you know, a herd of cows chips, just chips. We go through the drive-in, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Um, and we, we turned up with a punk band on a low loader. And they were just after shakes, do you know what I mean? It was just kind of... So all that kind of stuff. Um, and what we discovered was actually... Um, we, after the end of the first series, we thought, well, what happens if we do a bit more research? And so we started to build in a big research element. So someone wrote to us and said, did you know that in Sellafield, by the nuclear reactor, the, the, radio, the, the seagull crap is radioactive? And we just, we just... I was fascinated by that. I said, is it? How do we, why don't we get a scientist? So we got this scientist to go and take samples. And yes, the seagull crap was radioactive from isotopes that could only come from Sellafield. And... Um, we went and we so we opened up our own exhibition. They have a they have an exhibition center, like uh, an information center. You can come and see, and it's free to get in. And we went in there and set up our own displays and just set up about this whole thing. Um, and eventually did an interview with the PR person who admitted to, and they spent a million quid doing the cleanup operation. And we're like, wow, we can have this real effect. So then we started going. Well, what happens if we move it forward and actually start doing investigative stuff? And people started talking to us. 
We started getting leaks from all sorts of places. You know, we would get information. I went, this is completely true, right? I, I get a phone call from an MP, and this MP, and I've written about it since, um, and her name's Tess Kingham. She used to be uh, one of Blair's babes. And I get a phone call. She says, will you come and meet me in my office? So I'll go around to her office at Paul Cullis' house. And uh, I sit down, and she says, as I get older, I get more and more forgetful. I keep leaving confidential government documents on my desk. I'm going to the toilet for half an hour. <laughs> and we look at the, I look at this document, and the document's about how Britain is arming Morocco... Uh, and Morocco invaded Western Sahara, which is to its south. Uh, 74. A quarter of a million people fled to the Algerian desert and have lived in refugee camps since then and are still there. Morocco has built this enormous, the biggest wall in the world, a military wall down the side of Morocco between Algeria, and it goes, cuts across two-thirds of Western Sahara. And we've just rearmed Morocco uh, in the middle of this this conflict region. And um, it was great. It was front page of The Guardian, questions in the house, all this stuff being done, and we, we kind of had an impact on it. And so people started giving us documents. People started giving us steers. You know, we exposed corruption going on over government funding of projects in, uh, in Ghana, which were being subsidised via this Panamanian offshore and it, it, underwritten with public money, you know, um, we did all sorts of stuff like that that was just... And sometimes you just got lucky. You know, sometimes, it, like sometimes you'd, you'd work really hard and you'd build up stuff. Um, we, we ran a, um, a PR stall at an arms fair, yeah. right, and got people to do mock media training. And we got these very credible admissions of torture and all sorts of stuff from Indonesian generals and what have you. Uh, and then other occasions, um, we... Somebody phoned up and just said at the office and just went, look, uh, Nestle, the chief executive of Nestle, is coming to speak at an Oxford college today. We'll try and find out where it is. And the director was great. The, the, the producer of the show just went, OK, get in the car. Uh, you and uh, one of the researchers, just get in the car and take a camera with you. And we took these little cameras with us, get in the car, we drive up to Oxford. The phones go in and they're going, we think we found the college, we think we found the college. OK, so we park the car up and it's one of these great big old colleges, you know, with these huge great wooden doors and there's little tiny doors that you can kind of... And we're trying to get in and suddenly the door opens and there's a student standing on the other side and the student literally says... I know why you're here. <laughs> and I walk in, right, and so we're then, we're inside the college. Where the talk is taking place is you have to go down an underground passage because it's in another section, which is on the other side of the road. It's all walled, and they have these underground little subway things. Uh, and this other guy comes up and just goes... I can get you in. And so we're suddenly inside, and they, you have to take your, your coat off and you have to give me your phone and all this kind of stuff. And we've got these cameras stuffed down the front of our trousers. And, um, and we get in, and this chief executive of Nessay starts talking. And there must be 50 people in the room. And he's talking about corporate social responsibility and how important it is. And he takes questions and we just go bang, 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 bang. We've got examples of your packaging which breaches the international codes of marketing of breast milk. 
because which is dangerous. It's very dangerous to do. Um, and we get the cameras out, and he's all their press people are coming to try and stop it. And I just blurt out, "Excuse me, Mr. Brabbit, would you mind if we film your answers?" And he just goes, "No, that's acceptable." So we film his answers. The next days, we're getting faxes from his office about how they're going to change the labelling. And all of that happened because we have a team of people who are just like, the button's been pressed, everyone go. Yes, and, and, and you're, getting, you're getting fed leads because you are, it's certainly at that time, in kind yeah. of counterculture, but pretty mainstream counterculture. Yeah. Yeah. You're the equaliser. You're the 18. People are but, like, I've found a wrong. Who can I talk to about this? What Get it was, yeah, it, there was a certain element to that, but what the relationship of the team... Always, for me, we wanted to aspire to this one. I remember reading a book about Saturday Night Live and uh, the cast had rehearsed on Friday night and they were just getting a drink uh, at the end of of Friday night before they were going to go and do the show live from New York Mm -hmm. the next day. And they were all in the bar. There's Belushi and Aykroyd, all these people, and there's the director and the producer. And on comes the news and the horse that played Mr Ed has died and Belushi turns to the director and says, can you get me... It's Lorne Michaels, who is the oh, producer, yeah. rather. And he turns around and goes, can you get me a horse for tomorrow? And Michaels went, you want to interview Mrs. Ed. <laughs> Genius. Yes. And that's, that's the kind of relationships that you aspire to with the Absolutely. team. Absolutely. In terms of relationships, one of the things that really stands out from uh, an, an older show of yours I saw, must be ten years ago, the, the expression that you use throughout the show, which is, now me and so-and-so, me and the commissioner of so-and-so, We've got a bit of previous, and I really that really that for me that's a real that that's a very resonant note of you. You get you became known to the establishment. You became known to the authorities. You clearly became known to people in authority who were happy to look the other way or leave a note on the desk. And part of that part of that ongoing relationship. Did you feel your persona as a stand-up or your personality as a human being? Did you feel it, have you felt it change whereby you, you start to do political things and you become a champion? You become yeah. the person that I people mean, it want did. them it to did. help? I mean, it did. At one point, it was just like... You, it, it's all-encompassing. You know, we lived and breathed this stuff. There was one thing that we had to do with... Um, about... Uh, it was about the arms industry... And we needed to get some equipment and um, to do this stunt. And uh, the only place it could be delivered to was my garden on a Sunday morning. You know, terraced house, little front garden. They have to deliver a missile on a troll on a little trolley. And uh, I remember my son just coming in. He must have been all about eight. He said, "We've got a missile in the garden." <laughs> it was kind of, and that became the norm. Do you know what I mean? It became a norm for us. Um, and what happened... I remember getting into these... I remember getting into... There were certain ministers who, you know, we just really, really just would continually go after. And, they, and, and actually we had ministers, you know, trying to get civil servants to dig for dirt on me. There was the front page of The Guardian, do you know what I mean? And it was all kind of like 
trying to, you know, this is unethical, shouldn't be happening, government ministers shouldn't be asking to dig for dirt, all this kind of stuff. Um, we had a whole range of stuff going off. Um, we had, at one point, I was sitting with the... Um, the, the, the in answer to your question, which is, did, did, you, did I change? Yeah. Because at one point, this one particular minister, it was quite needly between us, and, and every encounter we had, he tried to just kind of do something. And I just thought, I am going to be a fucking avenging angel to you, you fucking cunt, and I will do my best to fucking destroy the project you want to promote. And it was, and it did become this kind of like slightly kind of Marvel mentality, do you know what I mean, that, that we were going to bring justice on this. And it does, it does, and you just... And is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's certainly a pompous thing, and it's something that I'm glad I don't do. <laughs> is it something that is necessary to get the show done? Yeah, yeah. What did it cost you? Occasional bouts of sanity. Occasional bouts of sanity. When you sit and look, we had microfiches because then, you know, at some parts of the show we were working on microfiches and we were going through people's companies. We'd get these microfiches and it's just like whenever there was a spare two minutes, we thought, well, just look at the accounts. And we had these trays, just tra and We had a microfiche thing in the, in the office that we'd go through and it was just like you'd be getting up at sort of three o'clock in the morning to drive up to... Newcastle, so you can bushwhack an MP as they walked into surgery at eight o'clock. So physically, it was exhausting, and physically, it wasn't possible to to try and do stand up as well. Um, mentally, it was completely all encompassing. Um, I'm glad we don't do it anymore. <laughs> Just a joy to talk to Mark. Uh, I will let you get straight back into it soon. We've got loads more on his uh, process and development. And you can just hear just what an incredible twinkle he has. He's so gentle, but so impish and so powerful. He really typifies that idea of the stand-up as uh, someone very vulnerable and very powerful at the same time. And some of these stories, just listening back to them, are, are just absolutely breathtaking I'm, I really just I want it to be OK. I'm so amazed that he's managing to stay alive and incorrupted, um, uncorrupted, incorruptible. He's just such an inspiration. So listen, we'll get back to that in a second. There are plenty of extra stuff coming up on the extras for members of the Insiders Club. Uh, we talk about how stand up is essentially a Thatcherite form. Uh, in Mark's opinion, we'll talk about uh, in more detail on two of his shows. Bravo Figaro about his dad's love of opera and The Red Shed. Uh, we talk about his detective work on the NHS show. We go into more detail of that. And we also talk about his biggest failure and the act he once accidentally impersonated, sort of channeled, at a jongler's gig. So loads of stuff there, about 25 minutes extra material. If you want to go to comedianscomedian.com slash insiders to get hold of that, then you can do so with a donation of £2 a month or however much you see fit and you get access to the private podcast, the Insiders Club podcast, which contains all of the extra material from this podcast that's already happened, and it will contain all of the extra material to come, as well as a number of exciting projects. Thank you to everyone who's been submitting for Comedy Critique recently, where I curate the feedback of loads of members of the Insiders Club, uh, and we all collectively listen to a newer act 
and uh, give them feedback and that's like an individual strand on the podcast really good fun thanks for those uh, people who've submitted i think i've got back to everyone now we'll do another round of submissions probably in the new year so plenty of stuff there also a quick shout out for a dinosaur themed podcast um this is sophie hagan and jody mitchell are presenting a dinosaur each episode to help them talk about topics they care about um so for example there's a styracosaurus which is a bit like a triceratops with more horns and she uses the idea of the horniest dinosaur to talk about a bunch of classic hagen stuff gender sexuality kink feminism religion body image and daddy issues i mean i'm saying it's classic hagen stuff it may also be classic mitchell stuff i think it's probably worth uh a look in it's a live comedy podcast launching this month uh, and they read out dinosaur erotica at the end is there any crossover between a ComCom listener and a dinosaur porn enthusiast? We can only speculate. So um, back to Mark now. Mark is on tour at the moment. So just a reminder to check in, have a Google of Mark Thomas, his website, his tour dates. He's at the Arcola in, I believe, Dalston. Uh, somewhere in London, the Arcola. I feel I've got a memory. It's in Dalston. Um, so uh, have a jump on that because I think he's there within the next couple of weeks. And in the show, the NHS show is touring in anger. And in, in, in righteous anger uh, from February onwards. So uh, please don't miss out on seeing it live. I saw it in Edinburgh and it's just painful and funny and tragic and breathtaking. And some of the stuff we talk about in the Insiders, uh, extra material, some of the stuff, just eye-watering statistics about the, the Grenfell Tower fire, uh, which is, it, the stuff is so affecting and, and meaningful and he manages to take these huge topics and make them so so personal so please don't miss that let's get back to this conversation with mark thomas say hello to a new era of mental health care cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100 percent online you'll experience the all-new cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. pressure must have been immense not just not just to hold your nerve under fear of arrest or reprisal or you know like you mentioned in um in cuckoo you mentioned um uh having a pop at hmrc and then two weeks later you get a vat inspection you know those kind of real world people corporations can you know the establishment can lash out in a way that you must needed to, you must have needed to be extremely careful. Well, look, your affairs you know, were an open book. It, you know. It's it's kind of fair, it's sort of reasonably public knowledge that 
I have been, um, you know, I've been spied upon by BA Systems employees or people employed by BA Systems um, by someone who became a very good friend and then we learnt was actually the spy. Uh, we've gone to court on this. There are court documents which are, we show in the show, um, uh, which was cuckooed, which reveal how BAE are employing people to spy on activists. Um, we've actually won... A, like BA Systems are now legally obliged not to spy on us. They've actually <laughs> signed documents. Whether, whether they'll find a way around that <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not, staggered to find that they weren't initially... But they, they had to issue an apology. They had to issue an apology and they had to say that we were no longer spying. They're legally bound to do it. The judge forced them to hand over the documents that they had of ours, all sorts of stuff. Um, I have... Um, I won 10 grand off of uh, various construction companies because my name appears on the construction blacklist. Yeah. Right? So you have all these different companies, um, whether it's Carillion, um, Amec, um, Calpine, all these the big, big companies. They had a construction blacklist and the Information Commissioner's Office does a raid and they find 3,000 workers' names on it and 200 activists, and my name was on the activist list. And we won compensation from them. You know, they've, they, again, they've apologised. You know, and we used the show to we used that money to help fund the show. The same thing happened. Well, a similar thing is happening now with the police, because I'm on the domestic extremist database. So, as a domestic extremist, I'm considered someone who may cause some kind of threat, even though I've got no criminal record, yeah. none whatsoever. I have helped the police arrest and jail arms dealers. I have no criminal record. Um, and I am a domestic extremist alongside people like Jenny Jones, the uh, Green Party uh, member of the House of Lords, um, you know, alongside Caroline Lucas, alongside a whole range of people um, who are, whose activities are, are monitored by the police. And again, we've got a court case. And this isn't me just making it up. We applied for all my data under the Data Protection Act. And so we have all this stuff, you know, um, that's appeared in a book... Uh, about the 100 Acts. We, we put my favourite ones in there. There's a beautiful one, which was one day there was an event um, in Parliament Square called Guerrilla Gardening, where people were invited on a May Day to attend and to bring flowers and vegetables to plant in Parliament Square and create a garden of Eden. And, um, and um, on my record that day, it says, Thomas stops in front of police camera, has large quantity of cress on rear of cycle. <laughs> you know, and on things like that. So you just go, this is very funny. But it's also kind of like, well, you know, you actually, you then start talking about people who are in a crowd at a rally that I was addressing on anti-nukes issues or people who were in a small group. And so you think that there's far more infiltration that's going on mm. rather than just like someone standing there in a uniform writing down and so we've got an ongoing court case with the, the, there's I'm a member of the NUJ National Union Journalists there's six of us who are taking um, Met Police to court so when you talk about the cost of it all it's kind of like your sanity goes a little bit well, and, and actually the thing about getting spied upon like this and it is kind of like some people go oh, well you'd be very disappointed if it didn't happen 
Yeah, some days I think that. Yeah. And some days I think I could live without it. Because what happens when you, someone who you think is a good friend turns out to actually be in the pay of Britain's biggest arms dealer? Well, that does mean that you start looking at your history. You start looking at all the stories that make us. Yeah. And you start going, well, if they're not true, what exactly is true? And it actually undermines your sense of self, who you are. It's that Mission Impossible thing, thinking any minute the walls could be pulled back and this be, you know, something, some kind of entrapment, do you know what I mean? Like, if someone you know who is a genuine part of your life, that story about Martin is just fascinating and, and so well, painful. Well, I mean, we did... I talked to people who were mates of mine who knew him as well, and some people knew him much better. You know, they talk about how he would encourage them to take actions which were illegal and actually at that point it's just not just undermining your sense of identity and your sense of self and your instincts you know because all the stuff that you do as a performer is instinctive you know if you're on stage someone shouts it's an instinctive response you might have prepared some of it but you know it's an instinctive thing that you do and that's how we work um and so it kind of undermines you a bit it, 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 you know there was a definite period of time I remember just feeling... When we found out he was actually a spy, it was just... Um, it was gutting. It was absolutely gutting. And I've, on a couple of occasions, I've actually felt my legs feel like they were going to go from under me. And that was one of them. Where you genuinely feel... You know that sensation that you're going to go over? The, the pressure not just... The pressure was during all of this to be if not performing live, you know, certainly there were elements that were live stand-up as, as part of the, mm. the comedy product, um, but also to be able to win the argument, to be able to have the information at your fingertips, yeah. to remember all the stuff on whichever of 45 projects and kind of variations on themes you're working on, to actually be able to win the argument, to know that when you're working, I would imagine in those sort of environments, the moment when you ask the question dressed as the bear, the payoff, the yeah. bit where you take the head, you can't reshoot that. You can't oh, fuck the argument do, do, do you, know, you can't say, we've got you on this, and they go, wrong guy. You know what I mean? You have do to you know, know Somebody stuff. actually said to me, we did this thing once where it was a big... Uh, I was talking to the Lord Mayor of London, and we were talking about the Lord Mayor show and the Church of England, and um, we had a low loader that had a police escort with a decommissioned Raytheon missile launcher on the back of it, and I had to do a dummy interview, look at him through the arches, watching the road as the, as the low loader came through, <laughs> and then had to turn around and go, why don't you look at this? And just as it goes past, and it has a you know, Church of England, City of London, killing foreigners for profit and Jesus on the silent thing, and we actually had the timing had to be absolutely spot on, and he turned his face drops... And then he starts to walk away, and then he says to his PR person, well, you make sure this doesn't go out, but he's still mic'd up. So he's screaming and shouting the odds, and we're all getting it on the, the, the recording it. And afterwards, a mate of mine just went, fuck, that was really... It's, somebody worked on the show, they said, that was really, really tight timing. And they said, what would you do if you weren't doing this? I said, I would be found dead on a kitchen table with a stocking on my face and a satsuma orange full of amyl nitrate in my mouth. That's where it would be. You know, it's that kind of rush. The rush of it is the thing that gets is me. It a, is it a compulsion? Did it become addictive? Yeah. Yeah, 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 it became very addictive. And actually, when it stopped, it was really interesting because I could sense the show... We were losing control of the budget. We were losing control of some of the arguments with the channel who um, basically asked us to... They stopped us doing things, which I found really frustrating. Um, because the great thing about stand-up and, and that tradition is that, is that if someone says you not to do something, you will do it. 
you know what I mean? Just because of the principle of it. I always remember Bill Bailey talking in one of his shows about doing a corporate gig um, for, for the, um, was it Swiss Bank? And uh, just before going on, they said, whatever you do, by the way, this is one thing, you can talk about anything except Nazi gold. Okay. <laughs> so he just walks on and goes, Nazi gold, Nazi gold, Nazi, Nazi, Nazi gold, Nazi gold. That's it for two, three minutes. You know, and that's, that's the thing about it. So when someone tells you you can't do something, that goes right in you. Do you know what I mean? When you can't actually do the thing you want to do. I have always had arguments with people about this censorship. It always drives me nuts. It, you know, it... It's, it's, it's like a denial of self. If someone starts stopping you saying what you want to say, it's a denial of your existence, a denial of who you are. And, that's, that's, and, and that was part of the reason that I stopped doing the show. And when that was happening, we'd been running this campaign called the Elisu Dam campaign. Uh, and it was about three years we'd been running it, four years. I accidentally became campaign coordinator of this thing. And um, I just said, I want to do a show about it. We've got to do a show about it. So... Um, my agent at the time just booked in that room upstairs at Soho Theatre mm-hmm. you know the little studio 80 seater we had 10 weeks just go in there every week and um, there was a we used to do um, the Pegasus Theatre in Oxford and South Street in Reading and we just used to have that was 10 weeks that was the 10 weeks in which we'd write the show and what would happen is we'd go in and write the show I'd get up there and the first gig I did, because this is a story that's been going on and obsessed me for sort of three years, and the first gig we did, I thought, it would just last an hour, and I said to you, we'll last an hour, and about an hour and ten in, I just thought, we're going to take a break. Are you OK about having a second half? And I had to check with all the people. And, and it was one of those stories that sort of automatically came out. And I became obsessed with that idea about how you tell stories in stand-up. And, about, uh, and it, had a real, it had an effect on the on this project that was they were going to build a dam and the companies pulled out of it halfway through the tour. And so, you know, it became quite a, a, a thing. And that's really where I kind of... I knew the, 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 the TV thing, instinctively I knew the TV thing was coming to an end. And, I, and, and it wasn't even consciously me thinking this is coming to an end. It was just an instinctive thing where you just go, I want to do this. Yeah. Take back the control to yourself, yeah, yeah. work on the projects you yeah, want yeah. to do. yeah. And where do the when when you started to move into those those live tours post TV in the creation of those shows at what point do the jokes come into it because I suppose my my presumption is you've got a genuine story to tell that's often ongoing you you have materials journalistic materials that you've got you've got interviews you've got pictures things that document the story and my presumption would be that you are just funny enough that you can display the stuff, make some assigns as you go, do that 20 times, and Bob's your uncle. Do you know what I mean? It falls into place. Is, is that what you have to, Look, when we were doing the TV show, we, I absolutely promise you, um, this woman who I work with now, is, she's a researcher I work with, and I, I, I'm a boss. But I've worked with her for 20 years. It's actually our 20th anniversary this year. And... Um, she is remarkable 
because she's so precise. But she actually still talks about the times when literally I'm sitting next to a lawyer while we're filming, you know, because we always used to do two shows. We used to film two shows. We used to do an early show and a late show when we were doing the telly thing. We'd just do it all in one take. There would be no retakes. In the interval, if you'd fucked up, someone would come and tell me and we'd do it for the second show. Okay. Oh, so two shows of each show, each, yeah, each, yeah, each yeah. episode. You have two yeah. runs at it. Gotcha. Two runs in it on uh, the Sunday night. And literally... I will be sitting on the stairs at the Banana Cabaret in, in Ballam. There's a little stairwell, you know how beautiful that circular yeah. room is. They actually, I don't know if you know this, they had the first, um, I think it was the first use of forensic evidence used in a court case was in, in, in there. There wasn't enough room in the courthouse to have the, um, the mortuary, so they had the mortuary in the upstairs room. Ballam, and they had the court case in the, oh, no they had the court case in the upstairs one and the downstairs in the room we perform at uh, that was a cellar so it was kind of very cold okay. and they, they were able to keep the, the corpses in there Jesus we are, not the, there about <laughs> we are not the first to die we are not the first makes me feel better <laughs> but the, so we used to do these two shows and literally I would be sitting and a lawyer would be talking in my ear you would have a whole team of camera people. You'd have a schedule you have to keep to. You've got directors and producers. Sometimes you've got people who are appearing on the show who you're bringing in live. You have all of that stuff, and you're still, we're still making legal changes to the script and pushing as far as we can to say what we want to say without being legally compromised. So do, you, do, do we take it from this that you... It sounds like you would need superhuman powers of presenting to be able to have... Floor manager in one ear, director in one ear, lawyer in the other ear, <laughs> conducting a live thing whilst making it funny. And what, what gets you through that is sheer arrogance. Arrogance and ego, that I can do this. Those are not, those are not words that I think we associate with you. Look, I'm a performer. <laughs> you can't run away from it, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Of course you've got an ego, of course you've got arrogance. You know, um... Comics who are very good and personable and everyone likes are just very good at hiding their ego. <laughs> you know, that's all it is. It's just a, a, some evolutionary social skills. I think that what I love doing is still that idea of, of getting out and telling people things that they might not know, things that they might not be aware of, and taking people on a journey. What became really important for me when we did the 2003 show about the Elysium Dam was the emotional impact that it had, because that's what gets people to do things. It's not just the statistics. What gets people is the emotion of it. And I remember seeing Steve Wright, who is an amazing comic. I remember seeing him in about 86, something like that, 85, 86. And you sit there and go, wow, just gag after gag after gag after gag. And he's incredible. And after 40 minutes, it's just like, oh, mate, tell me something about yourself. And, 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 and actually, there wasn't any emotional content. Do you know what I mean? Sure. He was genius. Yes. He will go down in the annals of comedy history as a unique genius. We learned nothing about him. And actually, what I love is when you engage with... What I love about theatre is what it, it, what it does. It gives people a chance to empathise. So you have you experience empathy. You get this understanding of seeing something through someone else's eyes. Great thing about stand-up is brevity. Get on with it. Come on. You know, but theatre can take you through a story and you can experience something from someone else's eyes. For me, when you add all those bits in... Like I think that what, I, what pleases me most about the NHS show is people come out and they're, they're, the two things, they'll talk about some things that they didn't know about or some of the statistics. Um, 
And they'll also say, I didn't expect it to be that emotional. Because actually there's a lot of emotion in the show. There's a lot of stories which should enrage people and should break their hearts. You know, and that's, uh, that's, a, that's the great thing about theatre, when you see something like that, that absolutely moves you. Do you know, I saw a thing, and, it was, and, and I'm obsessed with this, own, this the idea of stories, but also ownership of stories. Who owns the story? You know, because you can... Comics, we often... We, we automatically take on other people's stories, take on other identities, take on other people's voices, mimic, we muck around, you know. And sometimes it's from truth and sometimes it's not, and what have you, it's just from pure invention. But there's an interesting thing about the ownership of a story, about who's got the right to tell the story. And I saw this wonderful... There's this woman who... Uh, shamefully, I've forgotten her name, she's a performance poet, and uh, she was working at Theatre Uncut, and um, she's a young um, woman, happens to be Muslim and wear a scarf. And she, she was asked to write a play for the first time, and so she did this little play, uh, just a one-woman play, a five-minute play, which you read out at this Theatre Uncut event. And um, I bumped into her later on at Summerhall, and she said, uh, she said I've, I've not really seen any plays. She said, and we were going to see a play called Trojan Horse, which is about the story of the Trojan Horse schools in the Midlands, mm-hmm. uh, which were excused, uh, accused of, of kind of infiltrating them to create Muslim extremists. And she was on her feet at the end because this was her, this was speaking to her in a really profound way. This spoke to her and her identity and her experience. And that's amazing. That's an incredible thing, to get someone on their feet because they felt the emotional content of something. That's pretty cool. With specific regard to the stand-up elements, the jokes, Mm. the the, the joke elements of the show, we know you're a storyteller. I think, I guess your storytelling ability is sort of innate. I don't imagine that's a thing you can teach someone. I think you can, actually. I think you can teach... You can help people with certain skills. You can help people get better storytellers. You can help people become better stand-ups. That's why stand-up comedy courses exist. You know, it's just, a, look, do you want to spend four years doing this or do you want to just do two and skip some of the shit you're going to have to learn? So which bits... Which things do you think were shit? What, what is skippable shit from the comedy circuit? If you, if you wanted to give someone the difference between two years and five years on the circuit... Which things would you tell I them? I would to say skip? every day, wake up and just write somewhere and make sure you see the words. Do the stuff you want to do rather than what you think people want to hear. Is that something you suffer from? Is that something you would tell young Mark or did you not never suffer from it? I kind of, uh, no, I, I, I kind of arrogantly went and think, right, I'm going to solve racism. <laughs> I see that I see you know that in mean? some acts and, and, and I will this. do this you know and actually and then you go oh that didn't go as well as I thought it would so then you think okay what I want to do is, is I need to learn how to get people to laugh and actually that bit of how to get people to laugh just about editing just about you know just cut don't fuck it don't waste time I, what I love about what I, when I do sort of workshops with people I'll often just get people going right tell a story and now everyone who listens to the story, tell them how they can cut it. Oh, that's good. And actually you just get other people going, you don't need to mention, that's the bit that's important. 
That's good. That is and really a group of people as well. Yeah. So it's not just one person yeah, going, this, imposing their will yeah. upon, this is what yeah. I'd like to hear. It's what is the community yeah, they're just going, is important. Yeah, the important bit of it. And actually, it's kind of like group editing, where you just go, oh, yeah, that is the bit that I need. But actually, other bits, you go, no, 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 no. But there's a, there's a reference to a Joe Strummer lyric that's really important to me. <laughs> you know, and of course it's not. And what could you have said to young Mark? What could, what could you have accelerated... In your own for young Mark, I, yeah. I think I could have said young you, Mark the comedian. Yeah, yeah. Don't don't drink as much. Don't drink as much. You got a bit and excited about the freedom, the glory of the performing in pubs and being a yeah. Hey, I'm just, actually doing it. Yeah, and also the the the, the kind of like the 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 kind of um, the underground fucking rebellious image of comics as. Hard-bitten people, world-weary, just kind of stop that just now. Just stop it. You know, you're fucking 25. <laughs> Behave like a 25-year-old, come on. Thanks, Mark. It's a pleasure. So that's everything from Mark. Uh, I have so much thanks to him for coming on the show. Thanks to Bex Colwell for helping set that up. Thanks to everybody at the Place Hotel on York Place in Edinburgh for your, your kind uh, accommodation of uh, me and my recording process. Um, thanks to Nathan Wood for editing the show. Thanks to podcast consultant Pete Dobbing, Rob Smouten for the music. And thanks to my team of loggers, uh, Jake Crossland, uh, Emily Crosby, Olivia Phipps and Matt Hoss, who've been doing great work logging these episodes. All extra material available at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. There's a new super slick sign-up method now there, which is um, which I'm, I will be migrating to over the next few months. But all new incoming insiders join via that one. So it's a, a lot simpler than the old system, which was a lot of back-and-forth technical bullshit with me trying to sort everything out. That is now all ironed out, thanks to the people at awsound.net. And uh, when I say the people, I mean the fabulously named Mark Moriarty. So thanks to him as well. Um, we are going to be rolling out some more changes to come i keep saying that but they're they're nearly upon us um so look out for them and episodes coming up with laura davis this i mean there's some there's some belters coming up no such thing as a fish one we're nearly there um we've got uh, ismo Lycola, uh we have sean morley and loads more episodes besides elf lions that's a belter as well god there's some good ones on the way but i've been looking at the laura davis one recently and holy diver you are going to love that. That that episode, if you don't know, um, have a little Google of Laura Davis. She's an Australian comic moving to the UK round about now. And she is. She was, uh, Alice Fraser referred to her as they, they, they work on each other's shows together. So there's a connection there with a previous guest, Alice Fraser. Um, but I, listening back to that, Laura is just superb. That episode is exactly why I started this podcast i mean this episode is in a kind of meet your heroes way as well <laughs> getting to talk to people you greatly admire and try and get into their uh, process but the laura davis one in particular is like oh man it's con con catnip you're gonna love it that's all coming very soon remember you can tweet me at ComComPod. you can share the show around the place give us a positive review on itunes or an honest one is fine too um well not two <laughs> Uh, you can, particularly if you're listening on an Android podcatching device, please feel free to leave me a review on there. They really help me get noticed in the rankings. So if you listen on Pocket Cast, Downcast, Overcast, Fishcast, or whatever else you can find, um, then uh, please leave reviews there. Thanks to everyone doing that. And you can contact me, info at comedianscomedian.com, with suggestions for upcoming guests, feedback on the show, and other things besides. 
that's all I need to say to you for now. I will post Amble at you in just a moment if you care to hang around. But for now, that concludes the show. Speak to you soon. So we're nearly there. I'm going to try and sort of pre-record. We're nearly there, second baby-wise. Um, ten days left to go, uh, provided she is as punctual as her young, as her older brother. Um, he's currently younger because she only exists in potential at the moment, whereas he has a real age. Nope, still doesn't work. Um, the point being that I'm going to try and pre-record a bunch of sort of episode bits and then do the so that everything's done in advance. And uh, Nathan will be pleased to hear this for the first time. So that for the next month, which I've kind of allotted as a paternity leave from everything, um, I can just jump onto a quick postamble, which I will try to refer to other things in the real world other than just me rocking a tiny baby and trying to cope. Um, uh, I will. Yeah, I mean, you don't need to know any of this. This is me. <laughs> this is me trying to wrap up certain of my uh, affairs pre paternity leave. Oh, what else can I tell you? What else is going on in the world? Got to drive to Rugeley. Looking forward to that. Friday afternoon drives, man. It's been really fun um, being on tour for a large part of last year and doing, you know, some of my furthest drives or the furthest travelling bits Monday to Wednesday. But I've got a right stinker of a Friday night drive coming up tomorrow night. That's not going to be much fun at all. Uh, wading through traffic. Can someone invent something? Did someone... I had an idea ages ago for like a comedy car share service or someone was offering a sort of a, an app for lift sharing and I thought, oh, that could work for comics. Apparently there is now a Facebook group to do that, but I, I haven't experienced it. I can't really promote it because I've no idea if it exists for a start, but maybe Google that if you're doing lots of travelling. Um, I saw someone on a, a comic Facebook group trying to book a, a driver. Did I talk to you about this? I tried to do this a little while ago. Didn't happen in the end. I got cold feet. But just the idea of saying, look, I'm going to gig X, Y, Z, and this particular one, for whatever reason, pays well enough that I and is far enough away that I feel like I could employ on a freelance basis someone to drive me there. Like, you know, it's one thing saying, hey, I run a gig, and if you can get me there and back, then you can have 10 minutes. But when there's no stage time involved, but it's just... Um, just purely a cash transaction, I felt a bit greasy offering. And in the end, although a couple of people were kind enough to uh, to offer, I, I turned them down in the end because I just, I mean, the, you know, circumstances changed. But I was pleased to turn people down and go, do you know what? I, I'm completely withdrawing this offer. I feel really weird doing it. But that's the dream, isn't it? I reckon as soon as you're touring, as soon as you're confidently selling out 300 seaters, the margins flip and suddenly your best mate from school or another comic your pals with can drive you and uh, and be your tour manager you can get a van can you get a van probably not quite a van 500 500 you get a van <laughs> we should we should we should create a list of how many seats what what size venues you need to confidently sell out before you can get which perks exactly i remember when i interviewed ross noble for this show he was staying at a very nice hotel in birmingham um so presumably there's also levels of accommodation available to the uh the very successful artist. Look, I'm rambling now because I've got other stuff to be getting on with, which is I should do this first thing in the morning rather than last thing in the evening before I go on stage. But um, once again, I've failed to do that. I might add something to this later on if I have the wherewithal. Never used that word on the podcast before. Twice this episode. You're welcome. Um, if I have the one of them, then I might add something to this. If not, then that'll do me for now. I'm recording this somewhere slightly naughtily, somewhere that, you know, it's a quiet spot of a building that I'm not really allowed to be in. So I'm, that's the other reason I'm 
freaking out. Yeah, there we go. Mark Thomas is my hero, but I am unwilling to be in a room where I'm not entirely sure I'm supposed to be. Okay, goodbye, thank you. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.